Hello, and welcome back to the Natural Dye Podcast, a place to hear the voices of individuals using color from nature. My name is Kelsey, and I'll be your host today. Winona Quigley is co-founder and CEO of Green Matters Natural Dye Company, based in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Green Matters is a natural dye house for fashion designers, apparel companies, yarn manufacturers, and wholesalers. Winona was recently named one of Forbes 30 Under 30 for her work using food waste and rainwater to create sustainable dyes. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Natural Dye Podcast. Hello, uh, I'm Winona Quigley. I'm the CEO of Green Matters Natural Dye Company. Um, we, we were founded in 2015, um, but I want to talk a little bit about my journey with natural dyes and how I got here, why I got here. Um, and I think that because today is the eighth anniversary of the Rana Plaza collapse, this is a really, you know, a great time to be talking um, and really discussing like all of our journey with sustainable fashion outside of natural dye. Um, I know a lot of, for a lot of people, that was a big turning moment. And it was for me as well, just to talk a little bit about how I, you know, came up with the idea for green matters and really decided to invest all of my time into natural dyes. Probably my first experience with natural dyes was in 2013. I experienced rust dye for the first time, um, which is kind of funny because it's not necessarily a plant dye. Um, it's a, it's a metal dye, but I was not, I didn't have, you know, college student didn't have a ton of resources. So to find, you know, found object artwork was very exciting to me. And, um, the freedom from, you know, these very simple objects, uh, what you could create over time with elements and heat, the sun, um, pH, that was, that was really exciting to me. And I was with some friends who, I had grown up with who were also in the, you know, going to textile school, um, focusing in fine art. And we were just spending our summers outside of school working, you know, working outside, trying to spend time together and create together. Um, so that was one of my first experiences with that. Um, I then went back to that. This was while, while I was at Parsons getting my BFA in fashion design. So that exploration did, lead to, you know, further explorations for projects at school. Um, we were doing these, uh, design, um, design projects. We do about three a a semester and I was really getting fixated on, you know, making the textile swatches. So that was knitting, it was dyeing, um, there was some weaving and I was finding that I was much more drawn to that than drawing flats, uh, which is a lot of what fashion design school is and sewing. Um, so by, by 2014, I was really starting to explore plant dyes um, by, you know, just buying the extracts that are available online um, with botanical colors. They have some great extracts that we still use today. Um, also really excited about what was available locally. Uh, 2014 was when I planted my first dye garden and was starting to focus on that as what was going to become my senior thesis at Parsons. And I, at the time, was really interested in regional color, what was available, um, just in 
local plants, um, plants that maybe weren't native, but could be grown locally. One of my favorites that's still growing, um, in my mom, at my mom's house is rose mallow hibiscus, which as a solid plant dye, isn't the most stable. Um, it can make really interesting, beautiful colors that, uh, shift easily and is are not the most light fast, especially on cellulose fibers. Um, they are wonderful for bundle dyeing. Uh, I don't know if Kelsey, if you've done a lot of bundle dyeing, but it's, it's really exciting. Um, so that after planting my own garden and anyone who's a gardener would understand the, the emotional attachment to this, to not just the growing process, but because I was growing it and then dying with it, um, there was just something that, I became so attached to that. And I, I brought that back with me to New York when I went back for school that semester, the next semester. And um, I think my professors were a little frustrated with me because I was not that interested in, you know, technical. At that point, they, they really wanted me to be training to be, you know, probably applying for assistant designer jobs outside of school, perfecting my technical flats, um, perfecting my seams, things like that. And it was not what I wanted to do at all. And um, anyway, the summer of 2015, um, we, I was, you know, growing the dye garden. I was building a greenhouse. Um, so when I met my former business partner and we were at that point, we were, really thinking about this beyond just a process, beyond a hobby, beyond, um, beyond school. And I, we were, we were starting to think about this as a business, developing it into a business. Um, so I was still at Parsons when Green Matters was in inception. Um, uh, which was really interesting because anyone who has been through their final year of fashion design or really your final year of any bachelor's degree is pretty intense. Um, so I was simultaneously preparing my thesis collection, which was a naturally dyed knitwear collection um, knit out of locally sourced mohair and merino wool. Um, so I was able to use that as a building block for the business because that research to develop that collection um, really became the foundation of our recipe research, um, the dye research for Green Matters, and understanding you know what what's available locally, what's not, what are some of the limitations. Um, that was mostly on protein fibers, and a, a lot of dyers will know that protein fibers and cellulose fibers are two completely different ball games. But I think that summer when um, in 2015, I developed 125 naturally dyed swatches. Some of them were on um, just cut fabric. Some of them were on yarns that I then knit into the swatches. Um, that was a part of the requirement for my program, but spent that first semester really digging into natural dyes um, and developing the muslins for what would become the collection. Uh, second semester, we were uh, I was knitting the garments myself. We did have the option to outsource some of the work, but I couldn't afford it. And um, so I spent most of the time in the knitting lab or commuting back to Pennsylvania to be dyeing the yarns in my mother's backyard. Um, that was one of the craziest things I've ever done. Um, I did most of the dyeing in January. There was a couple snows. There was a blizzard. Um, the dyeing was done over a fire outside. So I had, um, 
just like a a steel wash pot that was maybe 10 gallons um might have been bigger than that maybe it was 20 gallons but I had just like a I rigged up something over a large campfire and um, I wasn't using extracts at the time I was cooking raw dye materials which does make it a little bit more of a time intensive process and it took like it could take eight to ten hours just to get the water hot enough to cook um we were using matter roots and oh my goodness I yeah thinking back to the amount of work, the amount of time. Um, yeah, I mean, at that point it was really hard to imagine how that was going to evolve into a business. Um, and, and just to be clear, we, I was imagining the business to be a naturally dyed clothing line at that point. Um, and, and those garments were pretty high end pieces. They were, you know, had several pounds of very high end yarn. It was naturally dyed by the skein. Um, so, pretty inaccessible as clothing to the average consumer. But, um, we, I just kept trucking along and I had, yeah, after it was dyed, I had to hand wash it. Um, I had to have, I had to spin, get it all from skein to cone myself. I then had to knit it. Um, I just generally a ridiculous process, but I, I did have a lot of fun. I didn't sleep much. Um, by, by March of that year, um, there was an opportunity to present the business to, um, to a panel of judges for a, a business competition. And the, the, there was a grant um, worth $20,000 for the first place winner. And there was a couple different, um, tracks, but we were pitching it in the sustainability track. And of course, this day I present my thesis panel is the day of the pitch. Um, thesis panel was in New York City, the pitch was in Philadelphia. So I presented panel and hopped on a train and got down to Philly. Um, and we won that grant. And so before graduating, I knew that after leaving school, I was going to be spending, I was going to be going full time into starting my own business. Um, so I've never, this is a little crazy, but I've never had a real job outside of college. I've always been running Green Matters. Um, so shortly after that, um, part of that grant, we got some mentorship and we were put into an accelerator program um, at Temple University. And through that, I met a um, a mentor who is still with Green Matters. Um, his name is Charles. He is absolutely incredible um, and has counseled me through so much. And one of the first meeting I had with him after, you know, after winning this grant was him saying to me, you know, why are you doing this? What it like, not why, but what do you want to get out of this? And what do you want to be spending your time doing? And I said, I want to be dying. And he, he said, then you don't want to start a clothing line. If you start a clothing line, you're going to be selling, you're going to be selling clothing. And there, you know, clothing lines are a dime a dozen, but there are no natural dye houses in the United States. So it didn't take much <laughs> to change my mind and change our path. And I'm very thankful we did so early. Um, I'm friends with people who own clothing lines and I'm, that is not for me. I, I tell them if I ever say I'm starting a clothing line, you need to stop me. Um, so that, you know, that was the summer of 2016. Um, and so we, 
uh, we did a, a small Kickstarter project where we were dying natural, doing naturally dyed t-shirts, just very small batch doing it in the same process that I did my, um, did my yarns. And that, as I noted, protein fibers and cellulose fibers, totally different ball game. Um, as I learned, it, it was a successful small project, but, um, became pretty clear that dying a rare fire wasn't going to cut it anymore, especially if we were going to be offering a commercial service. So, um, the next year or so we were working in a semi outdoor studio. We were working in 50 gallon kettles that could probably die 20 t-shirts in one go. Somebody's stirring constantly if you want a solid outcome. And that was something that was really important to us is to be showing natural dyes in the way that commercial synthetic dyes look and showing people that, you know, their, their perception of natural dyes as, you know, some the things I hear sometimes are really silly. Some people say it only makes brown, um, which I uh, is interesting, and I'm, I'm happy to, to chat with anyone who believes that. Um, but just trying to break some of these misconceptions about natural dyes—they're not that they're totally not color or light fast. That it only makes brown. That it can't be dyed evenly. Um, so it was really important to us to be trying to achieve something even. Um, we did work in that outdoor space for a while, did a few small projects. Um, in, in 2017, we had received a pretty big order and the outdoors, or it, maybe we hadn't received the order yet, but we were talking to um, a, a company that was considering putting in a larger order and then a few other companies. And we were realizing that, you know, the outdoor studio, especially as winter was approaching, wasn't going to cut it anymore. And that's where, when we moved into um, a very a smaller version of where we are now, same location. Um, that was early 2017. And we were still working our kettles, still, you know, stirring by hand. Um, and we did a project with a yarn company called Brooklyn Tweed. Um, in 2017, that um, it was 2,000 pounds of wool, and so it was great because wool is, you know, wool and yarn was my roots. It's what I how what I developed the business on. So I, I felt very confident in it. But the the volume was, um, you know, it was a lot, and we did it in eight weeks. Um, we got it done. Um, it was. I think, uh, I can't remember how many colors, but it was a wide color palette. It might've been like 16 colors. And, um, it was really illuminating to us how we, once we completed the project, how we needed to evolve, um, our dye supplies, our process with washing, um, something that I think is easy to forget is that natural dye isn't just, you know, putting the plants in the pot and putting the fiber in the pot. It's mostly the prep and post work. Um, so that project, it, it went really well and we got some really wonderful feedback. And we also got some feedback that helped us realize like what we needed to develop and what we needed to do better. Um, before that project started, uh, which, and it, it really was all consuming. We were small. Um, it, it was just three of us working at that point. And, um, the, before that project came together, we got the opportunity to purchase, uh, three garment dye machines. Um, we bought them from a company up in Maine. Uh, and that, that was a moment where 
I was realizing, okay, that is going to be how we're able to grow. That's how we're going to be able to make this into, you know, a profitable business. Um, I, I think any business owner who has started their business from the ground up or a bootstrap business knows that you have these moments in your early days where you're like, is this, is this going to work? Like, is this worth it? And getting the machines really illuminated to me that this is worth it. And this is scalable. Um, so we, we bought those machines, we got those hooked up and running by early 2018. Um, and that was a whole process because, you know, I went to art school, I went to art and design school and there is so much when running a industrial business, um, you know, having the proper electrical setup, making sure that you have a boiler that can keep up with your water capacity, making sure that you have a water source that is able to provide what you need. And, um, it, yeah, it's been interesting, especially because I'm, I'm a young woman in a rural area that, you know, I'm trying to, I'm calling, you know, contractors that are not used to working for, you know, a young woman who is running her own business. So that, um, I think getting the machines was when I ran into that challenge for the first time. Um, I, and I have gotten in contact with some really wonderful, wonderful, um, tradesmen. I, we have a machine or a motor mechanic who I, yeah, I, I just feel so fortunate to have someone like that in my court. Um, but it's not easy. It's, it's not easy trying to get these, um, just to get things set up and to be working with someone who's treating me, they would, the man that owns a business next to me. Um, that that's been a challenge for sure. Um, so we got the, the machines running in 2018. Um, we have added two more machines to our fleet since then. Um, the two or the three that we got, two of them are, are quite small. Um, the smallest has a capacity of three pounds of fiber and that's, you know, that would dye like a t-shirt, that would dye some swatches. And that's what our sample dyer, uh, her name's Kara. That's what she uses to develop lab dibs or develop sample garments. Um, we also have another small sheet machine that can hold about 10 pounds of fiber and, you know, also sample garments or, you know, a grouping of sample garments. Um, the larger machine from the first original three has a capacity of a hundred pounds. Um, and so that's, that could be two to 300 t-shirts. So you see how going from a kettle that you're stirring by hand that can dye 20 t-shirts at a time, that's maybe 20 t-shirts a day to a machine that can stir itself. Um, getting an even color agitation is really important. Um, that, that was a, a big shift for us. So um, now our two additional machines, um, the smaller one can hold about 50 pounds and the largest can hold 240 pounds. Um, that's about 800 gallons of water that it's at, of, or of dye that it's agitating. Um, and depending on the garment that you're, you know, if it's a hooded sweatshirt, that might be two or 300 of those at one time. Um, so that's been, that's been really exciting. Um, and there's been quite a lot of, process changing to, um, to get the machines to operate properly. And, and we find that each die that we use is just so different that we have to change the process slightly. Um, we get a lot of inquiries where somebody is Brit, you know, they have a die they want to use. That's not on our die list. Um, I have, I have uh, developed that 
for for our machines before, but especially if it's somebody who has a very new business or um, has a very new product, we really try to encourage them to work within our dye list because it they're dyes that we have researched and developed to a point that we understand some of their unpredictable variables. Um, for example, Kutch, um, there's a lovely, uh, lovely dye we use as an extract. It can make, um, you know, tans and browns and golden siennas. It's lovely, but it has some of these like odd characteristics. Um, it has to be soaked overnight before we use it. And, um, it, it can oxidize after it's been dyed. And so depending how you handle the garment after it comes out of the dye bath, um, you can, if you, for example, if you were to take it out of, you know, it's been washed, you take it out of the machine, hang it up to dry, it can form these like drape lines where the dye is oxidizing in some area of the areas of the garments before others. Um, so it's, we, yeah, we are not usually going to, if somebody comes to us and says like, I want to use turmeric on my shirts, I'm probably going to say, you know, we, we don't feel that's a good idea, but we have, you know, this list of other yellow dyes that we feel can achieve something similar for you. Um, so yeah, it's been, um, it's, it's been a journey for sure. Uh, and the garment dye machines are not our only dye process. Uh, we do offer an indigo service, which is all hand dye. It's extremely labor intensive. So it's a little bit more expensive than items than we can put in our machines. Um, but we have a pretty great setup to do indigo because we have drains in our floor um, and hoses from the ceiling. So within, when we're doing an indigo project, we, um, we don't do it unless we have two employees that can be doing exclusively that all day. Because once you touch indigo, don't touch anything else. Um, you're just asking to contaminate something. Um, and one person will be dipping and then the other person will be um, pulling the guard or the person that's dipping will set it on a stainless steel table in front of them. And the rinser, who's the second person, will be rinsing the garment on the stainless steel table. Um, so one of Indigo and all of the machines, machine-based processes are, it's a pretty water intensive process. Um, and it's something that I like to be very open about because there's, this like aura over a natural dye that it's, it's so sustainable and it requires a lot of water. Um, something that we're really proud of is that the studio that we've been in for the past four years has a rainwater cistern under, um, under the studio. So um, just a little bit of context, we are, we're in Lancaster County and um, we're on an Amish farm and my landlord um, converted his father's dairy farm into the space we're in now. And so the, below the studio, what was the manure chute was cleaned and converted to become a 60,000 gallon rainwater cistern. Um, it's, it's fantastic. We feel really good about it. Uh, it does not it's not always full. And so something that I've learned is to be so thankful for the rain. Um, some people are bummed when it rains and it ruins their plans, but every time it rains, I just, I feel, um, I feel so fortunate to have access to this resource that is, is not free. You know, I say, and I say that not talking about money, but, um, it, it's something that I think we take for granted, a resource like water, something we don't pay for, we commodify so much. And I, 
I, yeah, I'm very thankful every time it rains. I've had a handful of times where we were, you know, pretty slammed with work and the cistern was empty. So we do have a backup water source, um, you know, in case that happens, but we, we're really thankful that we have the facility that we do because uh, rainwater is ideal for natural dye because it doesn't have some of the mineral deposits that you might find in well water or um, some of the other variables that you might find in um, like city water. So yeah, I, as we grow, I consider like what, what does rainwater look like on a larger scale because we have not that often, but because we have had these moments where we, you know, aren't having a lot of rain and we do have a lot of projects coming up and our business is growing. And so I think about, you know, in five years, how many gallons of water are we going to need a week? And what does that look like in terms of rainwater? And, um, we've been having the conversation about, um, water recycling, I don't know if we would be able to recycle all of our water, but um, given the opportunity and given the right space and the resources, I think the the vision as we grow would be to um, have water storage, a water storage facility that would allow us to recycle parts of our process, recycle our mordant waters, for example, um, recycle uh, water used for indigo rinsing. Indigo is probably our most water intensive process. Um, so it, it's really exciting to think about all of these things. And, um, but as a growing business, we also have to look at all of the directions we want to grow. So we have our yarn dyeing service, which is still done by hand. Um, and we have to consider, do we want to upscale that so that we're not dyeing that by hand, but it is less water intensive. Does that mean package dyeing equipment? Um, so, we're thinking about all these different directions we want to grow. Um, but right now we're, we're just really thankful, especially post COVID that we're still around. I mean, 2020 as was for everybody was very unpredictable. And we had, um, we were closed for three months last, um, by governor's orders last year. And that was a really unpredictable time. Um, there was that, it was that week in March, we all experienced it. We all realized it was real. We had every single project canceled, every project in our pipeline. It was, um, it was quite scary. And so we just, we coasted through that. Um, we couldn't be open, but there probably in April, some of our existing clients were coming to us and saying like, one, are you open? Which we weren't, but, um, I had a bubble of people who happened to be unemployed. So, um, some of my family members who were already, you know, in, in my COVID bubble were able to start coming in. Um, but our, some of our existing clients were coming to us and saying our supply chain has fallen apart because of this crisis. And we are just trying to find anyone that's open that is willing to work with the resources we have. So we started doing some rework projects where we were dying unsold inventory for some of our existing clients. Um, and Indigo was a great fit for that because, um, it can, it, it does a really great job of over dyeing, you know, existing dyes. Um, so that was something we started and that was actually really exciting because despite the circumstances to see a brand, um, that would otherwise, and 
with some of our clients, maybe I don't know what they would have done with unsold inventory before, but I know that there are global brands that incinerate unsold inventory. And, you know, that's, that's a really, a really unfortunate waste of resources. So to have this moment where clothing lines were being forced to do something with that for their own good, um, was actually quite exciting. And we're still working with some of our, our clients who are doing that despite now having a supply chain that's, you know, back in order, but are realizing that they have, you know, there's not only an alternative source of income for them, but they can utilize these resources appropriately. Um, and uh, we had done a project for a company called Alex Mill, um, who is now one of our repeat customers that we absolutely love working with that now they're doing that with most of their unsold inventory. Um, and they're very open about it. They're not trying to tell their customers that it's a new product they've developed. They're telling, they're saying like, this is our you know, the unsold inventory, we've dyed it in indigo. And it's, it's been really popular and really exciting. So, you know, this, this past year has been really illuminating to how we can work with what we have. And I really hope to see the fashion industry continue to change for the better because of this. Um, it's, I, it's really still unknown how things are, if some of these changes are going to stay in place. Um, but we've, We've just been really fortunate um, to have really wonderful relationships. By the middle of 2020, we were just able to reopen, still uncertain about what working with a team looked like. Um, I, at this point, a year later, we've been really fortunate not to have any kind of COVID outbreaks on the team. We've been really safe. Um, and so I'm really thankful for that. Um, but when we were reopening and people were trying to get orders through, get product back for sale, keep their businesses running, um, we were um, when we had been in contact with um, Loom State and Chipotle Mexican Grill about a clothing line dyed with avocado pits from their restaurants, um, and this was something that had been in development for quite a while, but, um, they had come to us in June and said they were ready to start, which was a, a little bit surprising given the climate at the time, but we were really excited about that. And that pilot launched in August of 2020. Um, so we were working on the project right before employees came back. And, um, that was, as it was going out, that was when our employees were coming back. Um, the, pro the pilot project sold really well. Um, I think most sizes and styles were sold out within a few days. And so they were really excited about that. And, um, that has become an ongoing relationship dying the same styles that were in the, the pilot project. Um, it was a t-shirt, a crew neck sweatshirt and a tote bag all made out of organic cotton. Um, and that that's continually evolving, exploring new ways to use plant dye from their restaurants, um, exploring different styles to be dyed. And we're, we're really thankful for that. Um, I think that, you know, that pilot was, um, it was a, you know, it was a smaller project, but it did show us that taking restaurant waste and converting it to dye for a product be sold to, um, you know, um, 
a larger consumer base was just proof concept. It was proof that, you know, this could be done. And um, then they put in a little bit of a larger order later in the year in 2020. And um, it was it was just so exciting to see that this was possible and really expanded our creativity with like, what else can we do with waste? Um, we were really excited about that. Uh, we have, and, uh, we've been, um, continually collecting the, the pits from local restaurants and we now have a shed here on our property that is, um, yeah, it's our avocado pit shed, which is a little bit ridiculous, but, um, yeah, we're, we're just really thankful that there is this interest, um, in, in working with waste and that people are excited about that. Um, it's, it's been really wonderful. Uh, yeah, that's, I mean, that's the little pit elevator pitch, long elevator pitch, um, of how we started, where we are, um, and where, I mean, where we hope to go. It's, it, this year, 2020 ended up being a really great year for us. Um, and it, some of the projects that we have coming up for 2021, we are so excited about. We're starting, and I can't reveal anything today, but um, I'm hoping in the next few months that you'll be able to see some of the larger brands we're starting to work with. Um, and there's still challenges. Uh, some of our dyes are being imported and there's shipping delays right now. And so it could take 60 days to get an extract that we need for a project next month. And that's, you know, that's a problem. So there, there certainly are challenges, but they aren't any of the ones that I imagined uh, when this all broke out a year ago. This is amazing. I'm so excited to hear how Green Matters is growing and um, changing over time. I was wondering, listening to you tell your story, how have you educated yourself about natural dyes? That every dye is different and it takes such a deep amount of knowledge for one dye, right? Indigo. It, you have to know so much about it. So how have you educated yourself along the way? Is it books? Did you take classes? Did What what have you done? I was a little stubborn about books early on. And looking back, I think it was one of my biggest mistakes. I don't, and it wasn't like, I don't think it was a conscious decision. Um, but I, when I ran into a problem, I would look through Google. But if I could go back in time, I probably would have just bought myself a bunch of books and poured over them. Um, so natural dye books are um, are really great. Um, but a lot of it was trial and error. And un unfortunately, the, the emotions that came along with that in the first couple of years were intense. Um, but... And I, I think the first year of running the business, I had to like kind of pause and be like, not don't make mistakes twice. So make a mistake and allow that, you know, that is such a valuable thing. Um, mistakes have been, I, I think, some of the most valuable equity that I have in this company and I have in my process. Um, so yeah, learning from mistakes, writing da things down, um, yeah, keep keeping notes, but as our team has grown, it hasn't just been me. I've been learning through, um, through the process of some of the people on our team. Um, I think I've mentioned our sample dyer, Kara. So she does all of our sample dyeing. If you um, get in contact with us and want to start a project with us, the first step is sampling. And, um, so she being able to watch her and kind of be on the sidelines while she does that. Um, I focus on managing production while she, she does the sampling. Um, 
that has actually been really illuminating because I think there's an emotional component to mistakes and watching somebody else make them is, has made, made it a little bit easier to connect the dots and say like, Oh, Oh, there it is. Um, so yeah, I gotta say the mistakes, um, and, or, or maybe they're not mistakes. Maybe it's just, the process and altering the process. Um, yeah, sometimes there's just been these things where we, for months we can't figure it out. And then one day there's this light bulb moment where you're like, Oh, it's the water quality or, Oh, it's our washing machine has some rust on the inside that we can't see or, um, or yeah, just like with the cutch, um, like doing it once and figuring it out. I, and I have to say Kathy Hattori at Botanical Colors, um, she, I, there's been a handful of times where I'm like, I just sent her, you know, an email about one of the dyes that she sells and, um, she's a wealth of knowledge. So I, I, yeah, most of it was trial and error. Um, I'd say in the past two years, I've been like, okay, let's just get some books. (laughs) We have some books on hand. Um, but yeah, I think just being with the dyes and experiencing them. I, I don't think it's something that even if you did read a book that you'd be able to just do it perfectly to your own expectations or the expectations of others the first time. And something else that I've realized when I, uh, when I started the company in the first year of offering the service, I think I was trying to force the dyes to be what the clients wanted them to be which is something similar to synthetic dyes. And, you know, that I have learned that the educating them about the, what to expect usually leads to the best result. And, and sometimes I'll be in conversation with somebody and I can identify, like, I don't think that plant-based dyes are going to be a good fit for this. Um, just because of certain expectations around wanting a particular color or, um, that's usually it actually. <laughs> that's usually, that's usually it is just, there's so much, even if we think we have, we're in control of all the variables, we're really not. Um, difference in dye harvest lot is one that I, I really try to educate people about. If, you know, if we dye a sample in January and your production is starting in August, you, it probably won't be coming from the same batch of plant dye that we did had in the beginning. Um, and so I just, I really try to educate about that. Something else is especially um, tannin-based dyes. Um, so probably half of the dyes we offer have a tannin base in them. And um, tannins are really wonderful and exciting and unpredictable. Uh, but we, you know, the first few years it would, we would have a sample like, why can't we match the sample? Why can't we match the sample? And it, the change over time that a naturally dyed garment experiences is something that you can't replicate the first, when you first dye something. So we've had to educate our customers that, you know, we'll have a sample, it's going to change over time. And then when we start production, those production garments, the first couple of days that they come out of the bath won't match the sample. And it's because of the, the time element. They have changed. Um, tannin-based dyes not, will probably darken with exposure to, I say probably, they will. They're going to <laughs> darken with exposure to uh, oxygen and UV. Um, so just managing the expectations and educating the, the client. Um, and I, I try to differentiate the client and the customer. The client is the usually the designer we're working with and the customer is the end user of the product. So this is a, 
there's two components here. Um, I have to educate the designer or the brand or whoever we're working with about what to expect, you know, color variability. Um, there's the pH sensitivity and that means they have to educate the customer or the end user about how to care for the garment. Um, we, we used to get, you know, emails and photos of like, Oh, this person oxy cleaned their garment and they're upset because here's what happened. It's like, don't, don't use OxyClean on your naturally dyed garments. Um, most natural dyes are sensitive to shifts in pH. Um, that might mean that, you know, coming into contact with an alkali, you know, substance will darken or redden or change the color in some way. Um, coming into contact with an acid, depending how um, how intense the acid is, will lighten. Um, if if you don't address the stain right away, it could bleach out the color permanently. So, you know, telling somebody that making sure that the end user understands how to care for their garment and what to expect and not to use their naturally dyed T-shirt to mop, mop up a spilled glass of wine. Like it's not, <laughs> you know, these are. And I, I think that that is something that we need to be re-educating customers about beyond natural dye. Um, the way we care for our clothes, especially in the United States, is, you know, it's crazy to me. And I have, like, I think that there's this conspiracy to be wearing our clothes out so we buy more of them. And that the detergent companies are in cahoots with some of these large clothing brands. Um, we had a sample it was an indigo sample um, that was sent out a while back, and the um, the customer had they were you know utilizing the the sample as like a and we we encourage that because we want people to under like experience them and understand you know what to expect in production and um, they had taken it home and put it in the wash and she was like it lightened it got lighter in the wash like this isn't light fast and so I said okay what what did you wash it with and she had washed um, indigo with Tide Original. And I, you know, so I'm like, all right, what's in Tide original? Because I don't, I, I don't think I've ever used Tide. Um, I, I think for a while before starting the company, I just used whatever was available. Um, you know, whatever my parents had or whatever a roommate had or whatever. And after doing a little bit of research and I was able to expand on this during the time we were shut down, but after doing a little bit of research, the, some of most of the mainstream detergents that are being marketed to us shouldn't be used for natural dye, but are wearing our clothes down. Um, my my husband is from the UK, and they have the, Europe generally has a different set of detergents that's available. And when he moved to the United States, he said, you know, clothing that he had he'd been laundering in the UK with different detergents that he brought to the US and was laundering with some of the detergents that are just available in grocery stores was wearing down really quickly. Like collars of shirts were fraying, you know, colors were fading. And, you know, some of the the enzymes, the optical brighteners, the bleaches that are in these detergents that we are expected to use for most of our clothing are just destroying our clothes. And I've been really excited by exploring some of the options of like, what, you know, what are the alternatives to some of these things that are being marketed to us? Um, a higher end uh, product that I, I really love, but might not be accessible to all, um, is the laundress. Um, they have fiber specific 
detergents um, that are plant-based. So, and they're gentle. Um, I really love their denim wash for indigo dyed garments. They're, they are pricey, um, but I, I've decided to make the investment in their products. They're also highly concentrated. So, you know, buying a bottle that looks a lot smaller than what you normally buy for $20 when you normally buy something for seven, you probably are getting your money's worth because it's a concentrate. Um, but just being aware of caring for our fibers and our colors, um, is really important. And even, even simple things like don't, don't dump your detergent directly on your garments. It's not good for them. <laughs> simple things like that. We have had to educate people about, um, we have a little document that we send people when they are um, getting in touch with us and are deciding to go into sampling that, talks about some of the care, um, the care for natural dyes. Um, and one of them is like, you know, gentle detergents, pH neutral detergents. Um, and like my big secret is that Dawn dish soap is like, like if you could only have one soap for everything, including bathing, cleaning your house, cleaning your clothes, cleaning the dog, it's gotta be Dawn dish soap. Um, it's, it's really wonderful. And, um, is great for cutting soil stains. Um, so if I have a naturally dyed garment and I'm in a pinch and it's stained, I use Dawn. Um, I, I really, I highly recommend it for just about everything. And so I, I have been really excited about exploring all of these different options from something as accessible as Dawn to, you know, these higher end products like the laundress. Um, and even some of the more mainstream detergent companies are coming out with products like Tide does have what's called Tide Studio, um, which is for denims. I, I think that outside of natural dyes, just being aware of how we're treating our clothing is a big part of sustainable fashion. Um, how we how we contribute to the longevity of our clothing and, and the storage of them. Um, I think that, you know, you see these lovely bedrooms with these exposed closets. If you have an actually dyed wardrobe, I don't, that's not going to be a good idea. Um, not clothing has, has historically been encouraged to be kept in wardrobes and drawers and closets. And, you know, we, we find that naturally dyed garments, um, and it depends on the dye. Uh, indigo is pretty light sensitive. Um, so, you know, folding a pile of indigo dyed garments and setting them even away from a window. Um, there's UV that's bouncing around your room. They're going to fade in a few weeks, but that won't happen if you store them properly. Um, so it, it's been really important to manage those expectations, but I think it's so worth it because we should be doing this for all of our clothing. Um, and, really just investing in getting away from purchasing frequently. And a part of that is care and proper garment care. You're giving me so many ideas today. Do you want to, do you want to talk about your Forbes 30 under 30? Yes. Um, what a year. <laughs> yeah. So um, just a side note, being for the Forbes 30 under 30 list, I, I think trying to achieve status is I like just as a as a person is not something that I I want I want to get away from like one you know status as something that is like meaning success. Um, if you know if I was doing natural dye and no one found out about it, but it was somehow making a difference, that's what's really important. Um, but yeah, so I I have always been interested in being on the Forbes thirty under thirty list um, and. 
in the fall of 2020, I was contacted that I'd been nominated and um, was, you know, being considered um, for the manufacturing um, category. Uh, and yeah, I, in December, they announced I was on the list. Um, I, it was interesting because when we were filling out the forms, I realized I probably don't look like the average business owner or just average uh, professional on, on the Forbes list, especially in manufacturing. Um, it's mostly men in the manufacturing category. Um, and I think, you know, when people think of Forbes, they think of like lots of cash making huge amounts of money. And we're not, a mul you know, we're not making millions and millions of dollars. Um, that's not our vision. Uh, but so when I was filling that out and they're asking about financial information, things like that, I was like, Ooh, don't know if this is, maybe I'm not a good fit for this. Um, but I, it was announced in December that, um, for the class of 2021, that I am on the Forbes 30 under 30. Um, I'm very proud of that. I, um, and I was on the list with a couple other, um, new school students, which I'm very proud of and proud of proud to be part of that group um it was funny though because now when you google my name my age is written right next to it so i can't avoid it anymore um i especially as a young i started this business you know i was doing research for this business before i could legally buy a drink so my age has been for a long time something i was a bit insecure about because there are times when i'm talking to people who are twice my age and have way more experience than i do and um it, yeah, it, it it was something I used to be insecure about. I can't hide it anymore, but it has helped me, you know, with that insecurity because I'm realizing that, you know, my age is something that is allowing me to, I have the energy to pull this off. I, you know, I have the time to pull this off. If I was older than I am, I might not have been able to develop, develop Green Matters to where it is now. Um, develop, starting a business for some and for me meant, for years working for free. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I think that has had me finally come to terms with the fact that it is okay that I'm a 27 year old female CEO in rural Pennsylvania. And people are actually really impressed by that. Um, and one of my, uh, one of our clients for a, a team that I'm working with for a, a really exciting project that's coming out later this year, um, I don't know. I don't know how they found out about it before I posted Instagram, but they found out. And I, I remember when it came out, I'm like, all right, well, any client that didn't know I'm as young as I am knows now, because usually we're not meeting in person, especially during COVID we're, you know, emailing phone calls and, um, yeah, this team reached out to me and they were so kind and, and just so excited for me. And it just, yeah, it was just illuminating to me that, you know, my age, my gender, my background doesn't really matter to most people. Um, I'm sure it does to some, but then maybe they're not, that's not a good fit. Um, because yeah, I mean, if my age is going to be a problem with a project, then you're probably not prepared for the unpredictable nature of natural diet either. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that, that's been really exciting and exciting to see, um, to see that shift in what, uh, you know, what, uh, organization like Forbes sees value in, um, and, you know, a, a young woman starting what is a manufacturing company. Um, you know, I think the, I have a, a background in design and art, but you know, this is a factory. I have a small factory now and, um, yeah, to be a part of that and to be a part of, you know, 
products that are made in America and working with other p- companies that are making in America is something that I'm, I'm just really excited about. And it goes back to um, some of my roots. My my great grandmother was worked her whole life in a sewing factory until it was closed in the seventies or eighties. And I I just really feel that I'm honoring that and honoring my ancestors in seeing so- domestic manufacturing come back um, and being a part of that and investing in that, investing my time, my sweat, um, and yeah, I. I I'm really proud to be offering something that's made in America um, and really proud to be creating jobs in my community for, and for women in my community um, and breaking that, you know, kind of breaking that idea that, you know, manufacturing is for men. I mean, I, I remember um, when we first started, I needed a jumpsuit. Of course, there's lots of lovely um, brands that make jumpsuits tailored for women, but I couldn't afford them. And I, um, I have a Dick. I started with a Dickies jumpsuit, but they're not made for women. They're not made for my body. Um, I'm, I'm just, I'm really proud of that. And I, I, I want to see more, um, more women found manufacturing companies. And I want to see more women on production floors and change that idea, like what you know, who's a production worker, who's a manufacturing worker, who's starting manufacturing companies and who's behind Made in America. Um, our production team is entirely female. Um, I'm really proud of that. And we've been growing. Um, right now we have seven employees and they're just really, really competent, strong women. And there's just, I, this sounds kind of corny, but I was having a meeting with, um, one of our new, one of our new employees and, and she's, really wonderful. And I just got teary eyed because I'm like, look at these strong women, like running a business, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I'm, I'm really proud of that. Okay. I know you have a factory to run, so I don't want to take up much more of your time, but I was wondering, do you have a vision for the future or are you, I mean, I think this last year has taught us to be flexible, right? Taught us to really be flexible in what might happen. Um, is there this vision or is this like, uh, we'll see what comes day to day? That's a great question. I mean, it's funny because if you had asked me in 2016, like what, what's this going to look like in 2021? I couldn't have said this. I don't know what I would have thought. Um, but I, where we are currently is beyond any expectation I'd ever had. So when I think of the future, I I realize now how much can happen in a year. Um, you were here two years ago and we were, you know, small, we were, yeah, it, it was, it was different. And now look like where we are now. And I can't wait for you to come visit again. It's just a complete, it's so different. Um, we're, we're running at capacity now we're running multiple projects at one time. Um, I have to have a pretty wide attention span to be able to pull off what we're doing. Um, but I think looking to the future, um, right. I mean, right now we're doubling our revenue every year. So if that gives you any idea for where, you know, just in terms of capacity, where we want to be, um, five years, a lot could happen in terms of capacity. Um, and I'm hoping that the interest in domestic product and natural dye keeps growing. There is a lot more interest than there was five years ago. Um, but all of that's unknown. So much could happen, especially COVID taught all of us that we aren't in control. Um, but if I were to set goals, I think being able to invest more in 
sustainable resources. Um, we don't have solar panels. And I think I would love to be working with solar in the next five years, um, expanding our rainwater capacity and that collection process. I'm really excited about water recycling, things like that. Um, and also seeing how, you know, natural dye can be come part more a part of the, um, domestic agriculture. Uh, I, I really want to invest more in growing or like being a part of growing dyes. We aren't growing any dyes here. There was a short time where we were growing some marigolds here on the farm we're at. We're not right now. Um, just in part because I, my intention span to be able to pull this off is only so big. Um, but yeah, I, I would want to see more, um, and there's great businesses that are investing in that now, but I, I want to see more of that and working directly with farmers here in the United States, working locally. Um, and yeah, I think also the education part is educating people more about not just clothing that's naturally dyed, but how to care for their clothing um, and seeing our business grow while we hopefully watch the industry slow down what they're producing and being a part of, you know, figuring out how to grow a business, grow our capacity while encouraging people to make less, which is going to be a challenge. Um, so yeah, I think, and just when I think about growth, that's, you know, those are some of the important things for me. Um, and it, yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what happens. I'm sure it's totally beyond my wildest dreams, what's going to happen. Um, but we're, yeah, we're, we're really excited and we're just so thankful to, both the clients and consumers who are investing in this, um, you know, there, it, it is, it is new and it is, you know, people have to are retraining the way they're behaving with their clothing. And we're just so thankful that people are willing to do that and willing to be a part of it. Um, I also think that in the next, you know, if this is growing, there's going to be other people doing it. And so, um, seeing other businesses implement this to their process, um, whether it's other forms of dyeing right now, we're focused on garment dyeing, but maybe that'll change. Maybe there's as domestic manufacturing grows and we have, you know, more, you know, more factories making fabric, more mills, um, as the hemp industry grows, we, you know, hope to grow our equipment to keep up with that. Uh, so, so yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunity. Um, and we're, we're really excited. I learned about matter and I learned about woe. I grew dyers, coreopsis, Japanese in this episode of the Natural Dye Podcast has been produced by myself, Kelsey Doty, and my co-producer, Britt Bowles. Our theme song, Tinctoria, is written by Liz Galorn and her band. Please make sure to support them on Bandcamp. We hope you can join us next time, and thank you for listening to the Natural Dye Podcast. <laughs>